John 13 is where we're going to go in God's Word this morning. If you want to turn your Bibles there, it will also be on the screen. You can follow along there as well. I'll read uh, verses 1 through 17. Hear God's Word. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you shall have no share with me. And in the fastest turnaround in history, Simon Peter said this, Lord, not on my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It sends the reign of God's holy and errant and infallible word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God stand forever. John 13, we're going to spend um, the next five to six weeks um, as we walk through this reach emphasis in our church, emphasizing this part of our vision, our mission as a church. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who know God, grow together, and reach our worlds. And so we're going to focus on that third component for the next Six weeks or so reaching our worlds. And we'll look at a number of themes, and they will generally fall along the very commitments that we're asking you to make on that commitment card. And we come to the first of these emphases, which is reaching our church, or as I have entitled it this morning, serving one another. One might ask the question, what does serving one another have to do with reaching our world? I mean, you're asking us to make a commitment about in the church. Reaching our world, doesn't that seem like you should go out and... That's a valid question, but I think I can address that from the very same chapter that we see here in chapter 13 of John. We're looking at this classic passage on service, but at the end of the, after this account, later on in verses 34 and 35 of John 13, it says this, a new command I give to you, love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The beginning of reaching our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ is being a church that is attractive and that smells like Jesus. There is a debate amongst um, 
church leaders in over pretty much over the last 15 to 20 years. It's been a reaction to what was called the seeker model of doing church, which people said that's attractional ministry, that it's a, you know, build it and they will come sort of philosophy of doing church. And in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been this push for what they call missional ministry, which is you've got to leave the church and you've got to go out. And what I would say is I think those, that's a false dichotomy. The church is designed to be both. We are supposed to be attractive and we're supposed to go out. We're supposed to be attractive. Now, we may not be, we're supposed to be attractive, not necessarily in the ways that seeker churches are. We're supposed to be attractive, the way it says in John 13, by our love for one another. A great way in which we can be a people that actually reach out to our world is first and foremost to be a people who are reaching one another and showing ourselves to be the community that God has called us to be. And the New Testament draws this out almost, almost obsessively throughout the Pauline epistles in particular, that we are to love and serve and care for one another. It's called the one another passages. There's 59 of them in the New Testament. Let me just read a couple of them. Romans 12.10 says this, Be devoted to one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25 says, Have equal concern for each other. Galatians 5.13, Serve one another in love. Galatians 6.2, Carry each other's burdens. Philippians 2.3, In humility, consider others better than yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Make your love increase and overflow for each other. There's numerous passages that say, Encourage one another. And then 1 Peter 4.10 says this, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Listen, I'm not going to make any secret about it. The call this morning, there's a proposition, and that is that we are to be a people who serve one another. That you're to find a particular and practical way in which you're to serve in this church to care for your other brothers and sisters. And so this morning I want to look at how we serve and the call to serve and why we serve. So that's where we want to begin this morning, the call to service. How do we, where does service come from within us? How does it flow out of us, and how do we do service? And I think Jesus shows us very well in this passage. So if we have four points this morning. The first is this, that service comes, first and foremost, from following the example of Jesus. Following the example of Jesus. The old church would have said, Christus exemplar. Following the example of Christ, verses 14 and 15, Jesus makes it quite clear when he's communicating to them why he has done this. He says, if then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, an example. You see, Jesus came not to serve, I mean, not to be served, but to serve. He is teaching on servanthood through these Actions. Jesus is the servant par excellence. No one serves better than Jesus. And one of the things that has to become clear to those who want to reproduce themselves is that we talk about this for those of us in discipleship ministry is that reproducing yourself does not simply involve teaching on it, but modeling it. And so what Jesus does is he doesn't simply tell his disciples, he doesn't get up and say, Y'all need to serve each other better, it. which is pretty much what I'm going to do today. I mean, we're not doing a foot washing service. Nobody likes that. That's, you know, that's, that's gets icky. But, I mean, we're, we're not, you know, we're not going to be too literal. We're going to serve. I'd rather change a poopy diaper than wash your feet. Um, but, yeah, he, he models for them. He gets up and he shows them what it is to serve. 
Service is caught maybe more than it is taught. It is modeled more than it is taught. So what can we learn about the service, about service from Jesus' example? I'm going to give you four quick things I want to say here about following the example of Jesus in this way. First is you, Jesus served because it was the center of his mission. And we ought to serve because it's your mission. It's your mission. You notice in verse 3, we have a very clear and explicit statement of what was in Jesus' mind when he got down and began to wash feet. It said this, Remembering that he had come from God and that the hour had come for him to return to God, he got down and began to wash feet. What is Jesus thinking about? One, this is probably most likely the night before his crucifixion. This is the night most likely of the Lord's Supper before his betrayal. And he's thinking about the fact that his mission is coming to an end. And so in thinking about his mission coming to end and going back to the Father in heaven, he thinks, what do I do right now? I carry on the mission to completion. Jesus is thinking about his mission. And and, and we see this, I think there's a great parallel with Philippians chapter 2 when it talks about Jesus' humility. And what we see, what we have happened here in Jesus' mission is Jesus comes down and takes on flesh to live in our experience, our suffering, and bear our burdens But he doesn't simply come in and live amongst us. But we see that he takes on the role of a servant as a part of his mission. He comes to serve, not to be served. It's only half his career, this whole idea of teaching and living amongst us. But a significant part of what he comes to do is to serve, to care for others, to heal those who were wounded physically or emotionally and spiritually, of course. And what I want you to see that if you're a follower of Jesus, and that's what a Christian is, that's what a disciple of Christ is, is one who follows Jesus and the way of Jesus, that it will be at the core of your mission to serve those around you. In fact, you're not just going to do that, you're going to be sent to be servants. That is, so far as God is concerned, the servant role for the Christian is not optional. It's not just a spiritual gifting where you go, oh, I don't know if I got the gift of service, so that's not for me. No, no, no. Similar to sharing the gospel, we are all called to be servants. In fact, in John 13, 16, verse 16 here in this this account, you can't see it as much in the ESV, but in the NAS you can. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. We have the word sent used twice, and there's two different words there that are used. And one of those words is apostolos, which is the same word that undergirds the word apostle, which means sent one. That in our, we, we often think about being sent ones in regards to our proclamation of the gospel in word, but what this passage is saying is that we're also be, uh, called to go out and be sent ones in regards to deeds. That we're to serve not on accident, not when it comes, opportunities come right in front of us, but we are to go after opportunities to serve. It is part of our mission. It was part of the mission of Jesus, and so it is part of our mission. Second, I want you to see that Jesus serves with complete love. Complete love. First one is astounding. Listen to what it says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, is John and is in being the narrator and the editor here, is he saying that Jesus chronologically loved them to the end? That to the very last of his days, Jesus loved his, his apostles. Is that, what's he, is that what's being communicated here? Well, maybe in part, but yes, to the final hours, 
He loved them. But actually probably what is being communicated here is more that he loved them utterly, completely, to the last drop of his being. He loved them with all that he had, with all of his energy. That when he served, it wasn't I'm going to serve and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to serve out of merely my discretionary time, out of what I can afford to give, out of the nice, if I have enough energy left over, I'll give that. No, he sees service as central to his life and he's going to pour it out to the very last moments with every breath that he has, he serves. We'll get more to that and the allusions to that to the cross in a few minutes. The third way in which Jesus serves that we are to follow is he serves the undeserving. Verse 10 and verse 18 makes it clear that Jesus also washed the feet of whom? Judas. And it seems pretty clear that Jesus is aware of what Judas is about to do. And yet, Judas goes after, or Jesus goes after Judas, and he washes his feet. And it's not just Judas. I mean, Judas ends up being, you know, the bad name for everybody, but were the disciples innocent in regards to Jesus' betrayal? No, they ran off. They're cowards. And yet Jesus washes their feet. Too often, too often we think we have a very, I would say, we have a religious mindset to whom we serve and how we serve. We think to the degree that you deserve it, then I'll serve you. Listen, oh man, you may have had a bad childhood, so we're going to give you a couple opportunities, but if you don't change immediately, you're cut off. No, Jesus serves the undeserving, those who will betray him, frankly, those who are proving themselves to be his enemy. I think we're actually called to love our enemies, aren't we? It's shocking that Jesus would do that. Serving one another, even those who don't deserve it. Listen, there's people in your lives. Don't you want to say to your kids, parents, you do not deserve a thing. Or to that roommate who, I mean, I had, I had the classic roommates. I was the clean one. I was the one who cleaned the kitchen. And I would play the games, right? I'd see how long, how many days will I let their dishes stack up before I finally just can't handle the stench and the bugs. Well, one day... One day I'd had it. I took all the dirty dishes and I put it on their beds. <laughs> Listen, some of you have terrible, terrible roommates. I know this is pedantic, but I'm trying to enter into your worlds. You have terrible roommates. They don't deserve to be served. You serve them anyways. Some of you have terrible parents. And frankly, they don't deserve your honoring and your respect. They don't deserve your care, but you serve them anyways. Jesus serves the undeserving. Fourth, we see that Jesus serves specifically, practically, and humbly. Listen, I didn't have much time, so I just had to throw a lot of words in this last point, just to be honest. Listen, but did Jesus, look at how specific it is. He cares for a specific need in their life and in their world. They had dirty feet. And dirty feet back then, remember, they're wearing sandals, something like Chacos, which I cannot believe you spent $125 to wear what they wore 2,000 years ago. But they were wearing essentially, you know, in, you know, Middle Eastern Chacos, and they're running around a place that didn't exactly have indoor, tw- indoor plumbing. It gets pretty nasty. The roads are muddy and disgusting. There's feces everywhere. It's open sewage. And listen, if you come to dinner, you need your feet washed, or else dinner's all going to kind of have a nasty kind of flavor to it because of the smell in the room. 
They're going to smell that wine and they're going to go, earthy? <laughs> they needed, they needed. But what I want you to see here, more, more importantly than that, is it's humble. It's so humble. Jesus enters to the position that is the lowest of the low. In fact, in Jewish, in Jewish culture, no Jew could be required or asked to be someone who, could, who would wash feet. No Jew would be allowed. Even if they were a servant or a slave, it was seen as too dirty, too, last, too nasty, and too low to get down and serve feet and wash feet. You know, I want you to see here, though, that Jesus doesn't see it as, you know, too low for him. Think about who Jesus is. He says, you call me Lord and teacher. You know, this, and this is part of, like, the great Samaritan kind of account, the parable there. You kind of, you go, you go those people in the church, you go, yeah, you know how I serve the church? I give a lot of money. Listen, we need you, and we're going to talk to you in about four weeks. So put it on your calendar not to show up. But if those of you who, let's say you might say, I, I have the gift of teaching and being up front. And so what we often would say is that's how I'm gifted and that's how I'm called. And that's, that's how God has, has, has you know, called me to serve the church. And yes, you serve the church in those ways. But I also want you to see that Jesus doesn't use that as an excuse. He's a fabulous teacher. And yet he says, you know what, I'm going to get down and wash feet. Listen, what we're asking you to do today, to be very, very practical is we're asking you to take up no matter your gifts and your abilities. You know, almost none of the things that we're asking you to do take any kind of real skill. Can you, well, I mean, you might have to learn how to change a poopy diaper. Um, that doesn't, you know, just, you know, my kids have come back from the nursery with their diaper on backwards multiple times. And it's okay, it still works. So you don't have to be good at that. Listen, whether it's parking cars or serving meals or helping people as they come in, all you have to be, you, can you speak? then you can welcome people into the church. Listen, some of you are more, more gregarious, and some of you have a resting unhappy face. But that still doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to say hello. There are practical ways to serve, and no matter how highfalutin your giftings are and how great your gift set is giving to the church in regards to monetarily, you are called to serve. Jesus did it. He didn't make excuses. So find some place to serve. Can I be any more deliberate here? And by the way, let me say this, since we're talking about community groups the last couple of weeks and getting involved in those, the most specific way, yes, you should sign up for one of those, but the most specific way, if you want to serve in this church, is you sign up for a community group and you listen and you pray. And when people say, I have a need, you act. That's the people of God being the people of God. To serve. All right, well, we not only need to follow Jesus' example in serving, but we need to also think like Jesus. And for here, we need to see greatness in the way that Jesus sees greatness. And you want to see greatness, you've got to look to Jesus. Seeing the greatness of Jesus, that's how you're going to become someone who's service-oriented. Service look at it says in verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master. I talked about this just a minute ago. What Jesus does here is historically shocking. It is culturally bizarre for him to get down and get here and wash feet. You know, there was one scholar who said this, there's not a single ancient source, Greco-Roman or Jewish, where someone who is a superior washes an inferior's feet. And yet Jesus becomes low. What is Jesus doing? Jesus, and we've talked about this multiple times, Jesus is showing how in the, his kingdom there is a reversal of what it means to be great. And the question is, do we have a view of greatness based on what God said is great in his kingdom or a view of greatness as the world sees it? 
It's not mentioned here but it's in the Gospel of John, but it's mentioned in Luke and some of the other Gospels that it appears that kind of right before they kind of come into the upper room, that Jesus' disciples have been fighting and bickering about, you know, who's going to be secretary of state in Jesus' kingdom. You see, they thought it was a political earthly kingdom that Jesus was establishing, and so they're rankering for power in the kingdom that is to come. And they're talking about who's best and who can have this position, who can be at the right hand of Jesus. And then at this point, Jesus says, listen, I'll show you what greatness means in my kingdom. I'll take up a basin and a towel. I'll wash feet. Matthew 20 talks about this, and this is where Jesus says, listen, you're not going to have authority like the Gentiles do, where they simply use their power to crush people and to rule over people. But I'm going to call you to use your authority to serve other people. So I talk about when I, when I talk to men about what it means to be servant leaders, we get really rankled about the fact that it appears in the Bible that what God has said is that men are to serve and to lead in the marriage. But it's a leadership position that is given to men for the purpose of taking up a basin and a towel. It is a call that means if you're called to be the leader in a church or in a household, you're called to die to yourself, to become small. To not use your power and authority to crush those under you, but you do it to give them life. And it's in this very chapter in Matthew 20 that Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. You see, Jesus is about to pull out the greatest victory by being captured and tortured and oppressed and murdered. Jesus' understanding of power and success is completely topsy-turvy, though. He completely flips it on its head. It cuts against everything we know. See, the world says, you want to be great? Get rich, get places of success and control, be able to boss people around, have all that you want, have people serve you. Jesus says, no way. The way up is down. The way to power is to serve. The way to get happiness is to seek the happiness of others. This is the kingdom of God. Do we think like this? Or are we still driven by the world's framework and paradigm for success? All right, so those are two things. I want you to see the example of Jesus and seeing Jesus and the way he looks at success. We've looked at behavior, the modeling of service, and we looked at the mindset of the thought process, the worldview that we must have. But now I want to address the heart. And so if you've shut me down for the last little bit, I want you to wake up. Because we've got to talk about why, even though we know we're supposed to be people who serve, why we struggle with it so desperately. Verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, do you understand what I have done to you? And what I'm going to suggest to you is this, is that we don't have a heart understanding of why Jesus has served in this way. And because we don't have that heart understanding, it's the reason why we find a blockage and why we find ourselves not giving our lives away in the way Jesus gave his life away. You see, what is going on here in Jesus getting down on his hands and knees and serving in this way, taking up a basin and a towel, is, listen, the lesson is not simply serve in the way Jesus served. That is definitely a lesson here. But there is a greater lesson. There's more he's communicating. What Jesus is providing us here is a parable of a greater act of service that he is going to commit on our behalf. The full extent of the love and the service of Christ is not that he humbled himself to the point of washing feet. It was the fact that Jesus would take on a cross and which in that time, get this, the garment is removed. You see, John is giving us allusions to the cross all over the place in this passage. It is a parable. It is a living parable of what's to come. It says this. 
In verses 4 and verses 12, verse 4 in particular, Jesus rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. John is setting us up with language about Jesus laying aside something and taking upon something. And on the cross, Jesus laid aside his garments, and they cast lots for them. Then it also says this to weave some more language that John has been developing in this book. He says this in, verses, in chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. What is Jesus saying and what is he pointing to as he lays down his garment and wraps it around his waist so that he might wash feet He's saying, listen, this is pointing to the fact of when I'm going to serve you in the way that you truly need it. Your feet are clean, but they're going to be dirty again come, you know, a couple hours. But I am going to provide for you the washing that you desperately need through an act of service that is even more unimaginable than washing feet. It is dying on a cross. The echo is deliberate. When we see in this passage, in the light of this conversation and the action between Jesus and Peter begins to come more clear. There's this, right, there's this funky kind of discussion between Jesus and Peter, this dialogue that goes on back and forth between them, in which Jesus says this to Peter, what I am doing now you don't understand, but afterwards you will understand. What is the afterwards he is talking to him about? Is it about, well, after I wash your feet, then you'll understand? Well, no, it's clear. Jesus has to keep explaining things to him after he washes his feet. The afterwards he's referring to here is the cross. That afterwards... After you've seen what it is to be truly cleansed, then you will come to understand. Let's look at this dialogue between Jesus and Peter to drive more deeply into this. Peter says to him, Jesus, you shall never. And literally with the the language there is he's saying, to eternity you will never wash my feet. Jesus says to him, if I don't wash you, then you have no part of me. Now Peter completely does a 180 rather rapidly here, like really quickly. Okay, all right. Don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body. Peter, Peter's always just kind of talking out of his head. I mean, he just, there's no sense in which Peter has any clue of what he's talking about here. He's back, he's back and forth. He has no idea what's going on. So don't get anything from what Peter said about like, all right, just wash my whole body then. He doesn't understand it. But Jesus says this. Jesus says, listen, this is not about outward cleaning and ritual cleaning. This is not, you are already clean. What he's saying about Peter he says, Peter, you're already clean. You simply need a foot washing. Essentially, what he's saying is this, is Peter, you've been regenerate. The Holy Spirit has washed you clean. What you need now is a daily cleansing. But there is one in your midst who is not clean. He's referring to Judas, who is not perfectly cleansed, as Peter is. But Peter is expecting probably some sort of ritual cleansing that Jesus is giving. Okay, Jesus is giving us a whole new... Remember, they would, when they went to the temple, they would have to do this ritual cleansing to make themselves right before God. And he's saying, listen, in order to be right with Jesus, Jesus has got to cleanse me. That's what he thinks is happening. It's still surface level. He doesn't understand that there's something deeper going on. You see, with Jesus, if you combine Jesus saying, no, 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 you need a cleansing from the inside out with the fact of what he's pointing to on the cross, you see that Jesus is referring to Peter and communicating to Peter that, no, you need a cleansing that washes your heart. This is a living parable that shows you that you are not clean. You need to be washed once and for all, and then you need the daily washing of my purification through confession, repentance, and belief. This is a living parable in which Jesus is pointing to the cross and to our need, you are my need, our heart cleansing. And this is not a new parable. This is an image that has been run throughout scriptures. 
For example, in Psalm 51, verse 2, David, in his great confession of sin, says this in his prayer to God, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Is he, talking, would he, is he asking God for a bath? No, he's asking for a heart cleansing, to have the sinful heart that he has to be washed clean. Isaiah 1, verses 16 through 18, says it even more blatantly. He says this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And then verse 18, it says this, but come, now let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What's it saying in Isaiah? Is it because you don't pursue justice, because you don't pursue good, because you continue to do evil, what you need is you need a washing and a cleansing by the blood of the Lamb. Peter's problem, though, is deeper than this. Understand, our, our problem, what we, the washing that we need is we need a cleansing of our hearts. But there is a difficulty. You see in the dialogue here that Peter doesn't want the cleansing at first. He doesn't want the cleansing. See if I can draw this out as to why we struggle to receive God's cleansing. Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. You know the reason why we don't serve? Because we flip that. We actually do think we're greater than our master. Now, of course, you're good Christians. You would never say that. You'd never say, I'm gooder, I'm, I'm gooder than Jesus. Gooder than Jesus. Or, in the more grammatically correct, better than Jesus. Or greater than Jesus. Here's the hard problem and the reason why we don't throw ourselves into serving one another. We are not willing to be as humble as Jesus. That is the reason why we struggle in this area. Now, here's the greatest sign that we think we're, that we're great. And if you don't get anything else, this, this is, Tina Hine used to make fun of me, this is the point. This is the point. Here's the greatest sign that we think we are great. It is to refuse the cleansing grace that God offers us. Why would you refuse the grace and the cleansing? Why would Peter refuse Jesus' cleansing here? Because he thinks he's above it all. The reason why we don't serve in the same way that Jesus serves is because we think we're above needing grace. We think we're above needing the cleansing from God. It is a smack to our face. Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand, but you will. Jesus, Peter says, no, you're never going to wash my feet, my feet. Is Peter being humble here? No. No. He's saying, you cannot touch my feet. It's not that bad that I would need you to touch my feet. There's got to be somebody else. No matter where you're coming from, young or old, retired, professional, Christian or seeker, Peter's problem is our problem. There's a great Puritan whose name is William Temple. He says this, we rather shrink from this text. We are ready perhaps to be humble before God, but we don't want him to be humble in his dealings with us. Because when God has to become humble, it shows how low you have become. It is the most offensive thing about Christianity. You know, people say, non-believers particularly would say, that the most offensive thing about Christianity is Christians. I don't think so. The most offensive thing in Christianity comes in the place you would least expect. It's admitting that you're dirty and that you need to be washed. That's the most offensive thing about Christianity. 
At first glance, it appears that it would be nothing to accept Jesus' cleansing. Oh, yeah, wash my feet, Jesus. That's nothing. Wash my heart. Yeah, we, we have that in our, our ver, 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 vernacular as Christians. So we seem to get it. But do we get it? See, for so many Christians, there are hardened Christians who don't serve. And here's why. Because they think they walked an aisle at some point in their life. And I got the cleansing of Jesus. And what they don't realize is they need a daily cleansing. They need a daily washing. They have not come to the full understanding of how sinful and dirty they really are. Let me convince you of this. Let me, Jones is always, have you noticed that Jones uses a uh, Les Mis illustration every time he preaches? <laughs> at least twice. Let me, let, me, let me point this out, what's going on here from Les Mis. Les Mis, the novel by Victor Hugo, and it's the story of Jean Valjean. I'll give you some of the dialogue from the novel. Jean Valjean, in case you, you know, have been under a rock, you know, literarily speaking for the last, you know, 300 years, um, the the story goes like this, that he has been unjustly imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread, and he serves many, many years, and he finally is out, and he's paroled, and he goes to this uh, priest's house, this bishop's house, where he spends the night, and while he's there in the middle of the night, he steals the silver that they have in the house, and he runs off, and he runs off, and the police catch him with the silver, and they say, you know... This guy's impoverished, he's on parole, there's no reason, there's no way, you know, he would have this kind of things in his possession. So they take him back to the bishop, and here's where we get to the good parts. If you've ever seen the musical, maybe, maybe you've never forgotten it. Perhaps when you just read the novel, maybe you never forgot it. He comes to the, to the bishop, and they're saying, this man, he steal your stuff. And the bishop comes running out, and he holds candlesticks, and he says, my friend, you left so early, you forgot these also, now admit that you left these behind. That's grace. That's grace. Grace is doing good to someone who doesn't deserve it, who deserves, frankly, the opposite. But understand this, that when you have been slapped in the face with grace, it can be quite traumatic. And here's how Victor Hugo describes what goes on in Valjean's heart. Hugo puts it this way. Valjean could not say whether he had been touched or humiliated. At first, in opposition to this celestial kindness, he summoned all the pride that he could. He dimly felt that the priest's pardon was the hardest assault and the most formidable attack he had ever sustained. You understand? Put in plain language, grace was an assault on his pride. And in order to say, Jesus, I need to be cleansed by you, that all the washing in the world, all the scrubbing that I could do could not get this sleaze off of me. I needed the one, the son from heaven, to enter into this world, to take up a basin and a towel, and take up a cross and wash me. That's how bad I am. That's why it's humiliating. The bishop's grace threatened Valjean, and it threatened the very basis of his life, and the grace of God and the cleansing of Jesus. It was threatening Peter's basis for life. And it threatens our religiosity and our basis for life. C.S. Lewis says it this way. I think it's so great. While we struggle, to, while we're so much like Peter to accept the cleansing of Jesus, he says this, though this is the sort of love that we need, the cleansing of Jesus, it is not the sort that we want. We want to be loved for our cleverness and our beauty and our generosity and our usefulness. How difficult it is to receive and to go on receiving a love that does not depend on our own attraction. You see why? It is so difficult to receive the washing of Jesus. It is such a formidable assault. So much so that Peter, it seems that he pulls his feet away and he says, you will never wash me, Lord. Listen, have you ever received, 
You ever had uh, the experience of going to someone's house around Christmas time and they get you a really extravagant gift and you're like, you didn't bring them anything? <laughs> it's miserable. We are a people who are designed, we're like, it, 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 it strikes the very core of who we are. If you could imagine this, I think this is actually a Lewis illustration. We talked about this in the same idea of John 13. It says this, if you can imagine, if you wanted you young men, if you got married this week, and soon after you got married, you were struck down with a disease, a disease that didn't kill you, but it left you dependent on your wife for the rest of your life. Most of us men, right, we would wish death upon ourselves of that because we are people who are inherently against receiving grace. It flows against who we are. Have you received the grace of Jesus? Have you received the cleansing of Jesus? One final point, we come to an end. We gotta live the blessing, the blessing that we have in Jesus if we're gonna serve Verse 17 sounds kind of legalistic, doesn't it? Blessed are you if you do them. In other words, Jesus says, listen, if you understand what I've done to you, then if you do it, then you'll be blessed. That's what it sounds like. Now understand this. People will say, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Yes, Grandma, that is true. (laughs) It is more blessed to give than to receive, but only when you first receive from Jesus. See, it is a blessing to to obey the Lord, but I want you to see here that's actually not what the language is saying. The language is saying that if you do these things, you show yourselves as being who you are, which is a blessed one. This is, this is the paradigm, the way the scriptures work. This is who you are as a Christian. You are blessed, and you show that you have been blessed. You've received the washing of Jesus when you wash the feet of others. So you want to know about your blessing? You see, the blessing and the washing of Jesus doesn't simply end with Jesus cleaning your heart. And here's what I want to go to. I want to go back to the very beginning of the passage and show you what drives Jesus towards taking up a base in a towel. There's a couple things. The verse down there at the beginning, it says this. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. And it's at that point he takes up a base in a towel. Here's what I want you to see. There are two things that are in Jesus' state of mind, and this state of mind is yours as well. Not only have you been cleansed, but you've been given all the blessedness of what it means to be in Jesus. Jesus is saying, the Father has put all things under my authority, under my power. And guess what? That is the promise of the kingdom to you. You see, the reason why so much of the time why we, we refuse to use our positions of power to serve other people, why we refuse to kind of come down off our pedestals, is because we are uh, living our life based on this this world's paradigm of greatness. But what he's saying is, you can lay down all the power and greatness of this world because I'm going to make you a king in heaven and you will have dominion over the earth. Give it up now because you get something greater. That's what Jesus is going to and that's what we're going to. The second thing is this. Jesus knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. You see, in Philippians 2, which is a parallel passage, a theological passage on John 13, which shows that Jesus became humble by taking on flesh and became a servant. And then what happens? The Father lifted him up and he gave him the name that is above every name. What you have to see, one of the ways in which you are a blessed one is that when you get to heaven, here's what God is gonna say to you, and this is utterly amazing. He's gonna say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let me illustrate that this way. One final Story. David Ireland had a, was a man with a neuromuscular disease, and he first detected it in his left foot when it began to drag, and he wasn't sure why. But slowly it affected his whole body, 
And eventually it, did t- it took him rather swiftly, within a couple years. But during the time he became wheelchair-bound, and during the time he was wheelchair-bound, it was clear that he wasn't going to live for very much longer. He and his wife found out that they were pregnant with their first child. And so he began to write letters to what would be a little boy, although they did not know that at the time. And he wrote letters as a parent to his child without knowing him, so that after his death, his son could read. And after he died, his wife published these letters. The book was entitled Letters to an Unborn Child. And he writes a letter to his, to his future son, and he's wanting to communicate how great his mother is, about how wonderful his, his wife is. And here's what he says. I'll read it verbatim. He says, I want to introduce you your mother, because I don't give her, if I don't give her the full credit a husband is supposed to give to his wife, then it is not likely that you will fully understand what an incredible person your mother is. When we do something simply, apparently, that is motivated by, by, by me, like going to a restaurant, this is what must happen. First, she must take me to the restroom and disconnect my urine and fecal bags and empty them into the toilet, then push me into a stand-up shower lift, lift up the arm of the wheelchair, lay down a board, slide me across to the seat, lift up the board, put down the arm of the wheelchair, fold the chair, back it out, turn on the shower, and bathe me. When that is finished, she dries me up, she wheels the chair back up, she pulls up the arm, she lays down the board, she slides me across, she reconnects my urine and fecal bags, she dresses me, she combs my hair, she tightens my tie, she wheels me outside beyond the garage. She's even dressed me, even my socks. She lifts up the garage door, backs out the car, opens the door, pushes me to the door, lifts up the chair arm, puts down the board, slides me across, buckles me in, shuts the door, lifts the trunk. I watch her put the wheelchair in. She closes the trunk. She gets in the car. She drives us to the restaurant. Then she does it all again. She gets out of the car, opens the trunk, gets the wheelchair out, shuts the trunk, and it repeats in the letter over and over again what she does. She comes to the door, she opens the door, she lifts the arm, she lays down the, the boards. She said, we go to dinner, we enter the restaurant. She wipes the drool from my mouth. She pays the bill, she pays the tip. She takes me back out and does the whole thing over again. Then we get home. She disconnects the urine fecal bags, empties them, bathes me, puts on my pajamas and puts me into bed. And this is how he finishes the letter. Then she gets in the bed, and this is what she says to me. Honey, thank you for taking me to eat tonight. Luke chapter 12, verse 37 says this. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. In other words, those who are serving. Truly I say to you, he's talking about God, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Brothers and sisters, your future glory. But like that husband, you, your service is like nothing. And yet you'll get to heaven and he'll go, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he will serve you at the table of heaven. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, from the very beginning, the world says we are the center. 
And that if we want to be great, we hoard attention and beautiful clothing and beautiful stuff and positions of power. And we hoard our time and we hoard our energies. Oh God, would you, would you strike us with the shock that there was a God who would come down and wipe our dirty feet. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who so understand that aspect of the gospel, who have so experienced the service of God in our life that washes us clean, that we would look at anybody around, those who don't deserve it, our parents, our brothers and sisters, the other people in the pew, that we would say, Lord, they don't deserve it, but I didn't deserve it either. Because you have loved me, I will love them. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, drive the gospel in so that the gospel is then poured out of us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.